Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we typically talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. However, this is a bonus episode, which means we focus on a particular subject outside of the fundraise. Today's topic is brand strategy. Our guest today is Sasha Strauss, founder and managing partner of Innovation Protocol, a full-service strategic brand consulting and design firm based in Los Angeles, with a presence in San Francisco and New York. Some of his clients include Google, DoorDash, Nestle, and PayPal. Sasha also teaches brand strategy to MBAs at UCLA, USC, and UC Irvine. I was a student in one of his classes and loved our conversations about how to think about brand. So I thought it would be amazing to have him on the show. Our conversation certainly reminded me how brand is everywhere. So without further ado, here's Sasha. Thank you so much for joining me today, especially during these uh, difficult times. How are you and your family doing? Glad to connect, and uh, my family's doing okay. Everyone's huddled down and uh, are hunkered down, I guess is the right word, but huddled together as a family and uh, seem to be making it through, staying busy, keeping our minds active all the things you need to do to, to make it, you know? Absolutely. That's that's really good to hear. You're a brand strategist. What is brand? Brand is a relationship. It's the simplest way to understand its purpose, but it's a relationship, which means that uh, for, for a human to have a, have a connection to something, there has to be some dialogue or experience or understanding or interface. And just like people knowing people, you, you know someone by name, um, a, a product, a service, also needs that same kind of identity. So a brand is just a mechanism that you use to bridge a relationship between a, a product or a service and the audience. Got it. Brand is not only external, it's also internal, right? Right. So that's what, when I say that a brand is, you know, relationship between a product and service and its audience, the audience may be internal. It may be the, the builders. It may be the salespeople. It may be the HR department. It doesn't matter. Again, uh, you work, let's say you work for a big company that manufactures products. If you don't have a dynamic relationship with that product, if you don't feel emotionally connected to it, you're just a transactional talent. You're just kind of doing the job. Whereas if you feel, again, connected, inspired, informed, you, you start to care deeply and that helps you perform at a higher level. It helps you, if you're an HR, it helps you recruit with fervor, you know, you're like, oh, come work for this organization because we do these things and we make this stuff and it affects these people. And so brand is that that's kind of crazy wrapper that takes all of the as aspects of an organization and its outputs and, and humanizes them in a way that can build connection. Got it. Tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, we're also going to uh, put the link into your TED Talk um, as well in the show notes. Uh, that was, to me, really inspiring. I actually teared up during when I first watched it. Really powerful. What interested you in ha having a career in brand? Also a little bit about what a brand strategist is and what led you to starting um, Innovation Protocol. I never met anybody in my life who was a brand strategist. And in fact, when I was young, there wasn't such thing as one. So it, was a, it wasn't the kind of thing where it was passed down from an uncle or I read about it in a book while I was a student. It was honestly a, 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 a physiological, psychological response. It was a defense mechanism on my part. And I'll make it really simple like this. Um, anyone listening will remember when they were 10 and they saw a TV commercial or they heard a radio commercial or they saw a billboard. And there are those people who are like, oh, okay, fine, stimulation. 
And then there were those people who were like, oh my gosh, I, I need that hamburger. Or, oh my gosh, I, I want to buy that car. Or, oh my gosh, I want to play that sport. And I was one of the people who was wired to have the, oh my gosh, I want that thing. I want to experience that thing. I want to believe that thing. And so my, my childhood experience was one of being pulled by all of these communications. It didn't matter if it was from a religion or a car company. I was pulled by it. And until I was sort of, I don't know, awoken when I was 17, 18 years old and started to realize like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't actually need that thing or I don't really like that kind of car. Why am I called to desire it? And that was because someone communicated to me or to people like me in such a particular way in, in such an engaging and relevant way that it was hard for me to look away. So the short answer to how did I become a brand strategist was I needed to protect myself from all of the communications that were encroaching on my consciousness. And the only way I got to be able to do that was to figure out how they were made. So after turning 18, from that day forward, I only worked for advertising firms, marketing firms, public relations firms, you name it, just constantly while I was in school, after school, et cetera. And then inevitably, then you graduate and you work hard. And I worked very, very hard. I, I absolutely worked seven days a week for a decade. And what it enabled me to do is become, quote, an expert, you know, someone who's had enough exposure and enough time on the topic to, uh, to, to be good enough to basically hang up my own shingle. And that's what I did in 2006 with Innovation Protocol. It was just simply me saying, all right, I've, I've practiced this enough. I've been around it enough. I've worked it in enough. Let's see if people will pay me directly. And that's what started the business. That's awesome. That's awesome. So tell me, tell me a little bit as well about what is a brand strategist, like the actual role when a company like hires you on as a consultant? So if I was describing earlier that in my youth, I was highly impacted by the communications of organizations and that as I aged up, I found ways to understand those communications and, and defend myself against them. As a professional, what I've been able to figure out is how to actually create those connections. And I don't mean create those connections in a distorted way where I'm trying to get you to buy something you don't need. But what a brand strategist does is it figures out, an individual figures out who the audience is, what they're experiencing, and then tries to meet them in the middle with, with language and ideas and explanations that fit within their lifestyle. So here you are doing a podcast. You can imagine that uh, whoever's marketing to you a microphone or cables or audio editing or headphones, they could come at it with a very uh, technical, spec-driven motive. You know, like, okay, here, buy this microphone because it has these specs. But the fact is, is that you're not a microphone expert. You, you may be able to do some research and collect some details, but you're not a microphone expert. And so what the microphone company has an obligation to do is not only tell you what it technically can do, but also connect to you based on how you might use it, like produce the best podcast you ever could, or, or maybe you'll podcast more because this thing works so well, or it makes it easy for you to podcast. And you see that those are explanations, expressions beyond the functional capability of the device. And that's what a brand strategist does. Whether you're selling airplanes or bubblegum, the responsibility is the same. It's to sort of contextualize the capability of the product in a, in a way that the audience can relate to and connect to. I know you've worked with, gosh, a ton of Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, but I mean, this podcast is mostly focused on startups. And how do you think about or should an entrepreneur approach brand from the very, very beginning? I actually really appreciate the question because believe it or not, whether it's B2B or B2C or startup or Fortune 100, the actual approaches remain very, very similar. So uh, my 
I'm in a lot of entrepreneur societies and I get that question, you know, someone comes up to me and they say, Nasha, I, you know, I don't have these fortune 100 budgets. Come on, you know, what can I do here? And my reaction is the same. My, my reaction is, well, okay, are you going to be communicating? Do, you know, people don't buy what they don't know exists. So you've got this direct to consumer offering. I don't know it exists. So you're going to have to talk to me. Okay. Well, are you talking to me the same way that an alternate product is talking to me? Or the product that I already use to do that activity? Are you speaking in the same words with the same tone? Because if you are, I'm gonna have a really hard time telling the difference between the two of you. So the key factor for a startup is go about it as if you were building it with intention that you're not just trying to get quarterly revenue, you're trying to build annual revenue, you're trying to build multi-year connection with your audience. And that means that you have to do the things that big commercial brands do too. For example, commercial brands always, excuse me, big, larger brands, always consider their competition. They're, they're following their tweets. They're walking by them at trade shows. They're buying their products. And what that, what that does for you is it really helps ensure that you don't sound the same. So that's one quick action that I would take as a startup. And the second quick action that I would take as a startup is, well, who is your audience? Who is your buyer? And how are they thinking, behaving, learning, getting informed, et cetera? Because again, no matter how powerful your capabilities, if one, you don't communicate them, then your audience is not going to receive them. But two, if you don't communicate them in a way that's contextually relevant to that audience, it doesn't matter how innovative your solution, it's not going to break through and change their life. And so my ask is uh, not only consider who your competition is, but consider who that consumer is, consider what situation they might be in, consider what language they use to describe that situation. And that will help even the smallest of startups get their brand right. I really appreciate that. I mean, it seems like a lot of what you said is really about looking at the actual competitive analysis and, you know, how are you communicating versus the versus the rest of the competition and how you can actually d differentiate yourself on that front. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I see a lot of I see a lot of really inspired entrepreneurs. They come out with a blast, you know, they're tweeting and Instagramming, they're building their web page. They're so excited about what they're releasing. And then the, what they realize is, for example, they might be using um, uh, non-industry terminology. They're, you know, they're an entrepreneur who's moved between categories. And so they're using non-specific language to describe their capabilities. And when you're a technical buyer or you're a consumer who's trying to decide whether to give this to your child, like if it doesn't fit within your psyche, within the space of your consciousness as you're going about your purchase, then, you're, then it feels a little weird. It feels like something strange. And so that's why this is such an imperative. And by the way, in the internet era, most of this is free. For example, when it comes to evaluating competition, you can surf the internet to the nth degree and you will find a lot about what your competition is doing. Same thing with your consumer. You can do social listening. You can join social media channels and pay deep attention to what consumers are saying within those channels. So these are not beyond the grasp of a startup with you know low income. If you're a startup building something very innovative and new, how do you think about first mover advantage when it comes to brand? It's a really interesting question, Mike, because first mover advantage before the internet was gold. Because if a consumer didn't necessarily know that a solution existed and you were the first to introduce it to them, you got this kind of first in line you know, priority. It's interesting. In the internet era, because everyone can talk and discuss and share and respond, being first may be that you are the first to start the conversation, but that doesn't give you ownership over the entire idea. Just because you, you know, suggest making a sandwich in a certain way doesn't mean that for the, 
the rest of time that that idea is yours. And so first mover advantage, believe it or not, unless you're working on a patented or trademark process, first mover advantage has kind of lost its significance in the internet era. We're all using applications like you and I are on Zoom right now. Zoom is not the first you know, web meeting tool. It's totally not. And we don't even remember who the first one was. So that's the point is that what matters now is who's best communicated, who's most consistently communicated, who's most relevantly communicated. Everything else after that is nice to have, or it's really interesting to say you were the original, but it doesn't seem to matter like it used to. Do you believe that building a brand is the most expensive asset that you can build and also the hardest asset you can build? Well, I'm not, I'm not one to speak about what it costs to invent something. You know, you're inventing a new pharmaceutical or a new kind of automobile. I, I, don't, I don't have the right to pontificate on, on what the cost of that is. The reason why, though, I think branding by nature is expensive is because it doesn't work doing it once. It's not the kind of thing that when you buy an office chair, you've got it and you can use it. Branding is the kind of thing that once you, once you start doing it, you can't stop doing it. It becomes a, a, a daily responsibility. And whether you're the CEO giving a speech or you're the social media community manager and you're posting a tweet, you know, brand doesn't stop. And so I would say over the long term, brand is one of the most expensive things that you will invest in. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And thinking about brand today, consumers now have more choice and there's more disruptive companies than ever. How do you think about the value of brand? Because it seems like starting a company, you're you're able to do it now so easily. There's not this like high threshold anymore in order to to enter so how do you how do you think about starting a brand and as well as do you think this is the hardest time to build a brand considering there's so much competition yeah i really appreciate what you say the the, the word i use in class is that there's never been such a cacophony of noise you know so many brands encroaching into our daily daily life you know 15 years ago before the mobile phone was so prominent you know, you would only be exposed to so much media. You know, you might have listened to the radio, might have watched a TV commercial. That was it. And now every hour of every day, including when you're sleeping and your phone is buzzing, you know, you're being outreached to. And so breaking through that clutter, like showing up amidst that cacophony of noise, yes, that, that I have to say, it's, it's never been as hard to break through. Now, one caveat, which is that it used to be that when you would outreach as a brand, you kind of had to just yell to the masses. You know, you would, let's just say that you're an employer and you're trying to recruit new graduate students from USC. You kind of would have to advertise across the campus or in the campus newsletter, et cetera. But now because you can target an audience so specifically based on where they hang out in social media, based on their social media identity, now you don't have to worry about the wide broadcast. Now you can focus on the targeted broadcast. And that's something that is actually quite empowering today. Yeah, I actually loved your example as well in one of your YouTube videos about the Super Bowl commercial, about how before the Super Bowl commercial was this big thing. And now it's not, you know, people are on their phones or, you know, just, you know, in the bathroom during it. You know, it's not it's not as big of a deal. They could always watch it later if they wanted to. I also wanted to know because, you know, on, on this show, we talk a bit about brands that have social missions or social values, you know, eco-friendly, sustainable supply chains. Because if brand is an emotion, if consumer has a deeper connection to brands, do you think that these brands will be able to charge and be successful at charging like a larger premium? I really appreciate your question, Mike, because for the longest time, 
being kind to the world or kind to the people was a nice to have, right? It was like, oh, this company also has an eco-friendly component to it, right? Um, I'm actually, what's so interesting now, and I see this a lot with my graduate students at all the universities I teach at, is that now it's like one of the top two reasons people choose something is how is that organization behaving? Now, let's just pretend that you know, you're not an environmentalist, so that doesn't intrigue you. But what if you care about children? Or what if you care about power efficiency? Well, fine, but each of those things is kind of a cause beyond product function that gets you to care like a little bit more. And like we were describing earlier, Mike, you know, consumers need, buyers need a relationship with what they're buying. And if, if, if product feature and function is not enough to have a relationship around it, well, then fine. Maybe you can talk about the people that make it. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe you could talk about the origin of it. Okay, that's really interesting. But one thing that you can definitely also talk about is what is what good happens to the world because we're doing this? Or how do we use this to, to create good in the world? And the interesting thing about the answer to that question is people will listen. They'll kind of be intrigued by it. Even if the product isn't like built for them, they'll kind of be like, all right, well, I see how that company is doing things that's really, really interesting. In fact, in this time of COVID-19, you know, we're seeing a lot of organizations who are getting out of their core manufacturing capability and they're getting they're manufacturing things like gowns and masks and such. And you say to yourself, like, well, why are they doing it? Um, you know, there's clearly no margin. And not only that, but they're kind of like most of their workforce is not working, but these companies are putting some workforce into risk, you know, uh, to try and manufacture these products. Um, even though I really, really appreciate that they're doing it, why are they doing it? They're doing it because it looks and feels good internally and externally. That's why they're doing it. And so you have to acknowledge that that means that consumers are so engaged in how an organization is behaving that if you are not doing CSR or you're not doing some cause-related activity attached to your business, you're going to be written off. You're going to be ignorable. Uh, and your competition is going to smarten up, get on top of it, and do things that are good for the world while they make a profit. Excellent examples as always, Sasha. How I think about it is, you know, brand is of course an emotion. And if you're if you're having, um, you know, CSR or, you know, a social impact mission, then that emotion just gets deeper or it could get deeper and so more powerful. Now, do you think that this would, that for these types of brands, that then there's higher switching costs for consumers? Oh, beautifully said. That is exactly the point is that, in fact, switching costs are quite low now. It's, you know, for example, it used to be moving, moving from one bank to the next was so hard. People never did it. But the switching costs now, because everything is a digital account, it's so much easier to move between A and B. You're right. When I care about what an organization is doing, when I believe in what they're doing, the emotional switching cost is higher. And that's the key. How do you measure the impact of brand on a consumer's purchase decision? Yeah, my first answer is you can't, but you can try, okay? So let me tell you why I say I can't, okay? So let's just pretend that you and I are working on a, we're, we're the brand strategist and we're working on a product that shows up in grocery retail, okay? And we have convinced ourselves that we got the packaging right. And we got the name, it's so good. And we're doing all these great activities that are gonna make people care about this product. And then let's say the product sells really, really well. Mike and I are high-fiving. We're like, dude, we totally got this right. We, we got the packaging. It was perfect. The name was correct. Look, <laughs> what competitors did or didn't do that month 
also probably mattered. And, and how the, the retailer puts your product on the shelf also mattered. And what the market pricing was at the time also mattered. So for Mike and I to take credit for the brand success, for the product success uh, being tied to the brand specifically would be unfair. So that's the challenge is that the brand cannot be evaluated in a vacuum. You can't say product moved because brand, but what you can acknowledge is that the brand makes everything a little bit better. So, okay, we're thinking about what we're gonna name the product. A brand strategist would evaluate, well, what are the other products on the shelf called? How do we not name ourselves the same way? Okay, well, there you go. That's how the brand might help. The brand might help minimize confusion. Okay, check, good. Next, um, okay, we, we also made sure that the brand's voice is unique enough that when you look it up online, when you look up our message online and how no one else is also using that message, that makes us much easier to find. Okay, point for the brand team. The, 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 the business is easier to find and learn about because of the decisions that you made. And so this is my long answer to your question about how can you use, how, you know, how can you measure a brand's impact? Theoretically, you can't measure it in a vacuum, but you can acknowledge its contribution across an organization, across a product offering. I'll end by suggesting, for example, you know, when you say, can you measure a brand? Well, you, know, you and I have both worked for companies that did not have a strong brand, and then we worked for a company that did have a strong brand. And you know, when a company has a strong brand, you might work a little harder, you might work for less money, you might not look for another job as fast because that brand looks really good next to your identity. So I, you know, how, do I, how do I quantify what that's worth? Employee retention, employees work 10% harder, 10% longer and look for jobs 10% less because their brand is strong. I don't know. I don't know what the measure is, but I, it's kind of like, you know it when you see it. On to your last point, even when it comes to hiring, right? And you're trying and you're a founder and you're looking to recruit, it might come back down taking a smaller paycheck because it more identifies with your own brand. So, you know, I had on a couple of investors that talked about the importance of distribution. One investor said, starting out a company, they believe that 80% of your time should be devoted towards distribution and unique and you and your own unique distribution strategy. 20% just everything else. Wanted to hear how you think about distribution as it relates to brand. I, you know, I appreciate what those folks said because again, no matter how original or interesting your product capabilities and no matter how passionate you are as a founder, if your product can't get to the consumer, then who cares? So stop getting so excited about your innovation. And so I agree, you know, if you can't figure out how to get the product on shelf, you can't figure out how to get the product to the consumer, then there's no point in doing any brand building. And that's why we see such a boom in direct consumer behavior, even for very large, expensive products going direct to consumer. Like think about airlines. Airlines for the longest time were using these aggregators. You know, for decades, we're using these website aggregators that would pull all of their flights into the same list. And then Southwest Airlines was like, no, like I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this, this, sort of erratic distribution behavior, we're going to create our own distribution platform. And they pulled back all flights. You can only book a Southwest Airlines flight from a Southwest.com website. And everyone looked at that like, oh, Southwest, you're going to screw yourself. But what Southwest realized was that getting direct to the consumer, getting the pricing as accurate and specific as possible direct to the consumer, that was more important than the cacophony of choices from every single flight that possibly could be offered. And so interestingly enough, Southwest has quickly climbed 
from one of the leading airlines to like top two most productive airline in North America, and their entire approach has been direct to consumer. So to rewind back to your question about you know, distribution. Yes, distribution is everything. And then once you've got distribution, I'd argue that brand becomes everything because all of that work to get it into that retail channel was significant. But if you show up at the retail channel, non-differentiated, non-engaging, uh, non, uh, not relevant, not contextually applicable, then it doesn't matter that you have distribution. The product isn't going to sell. So everyone's asking about like, all right, well, what are the best ways to market these days? Because, you know, everyone's blasting on social and it's so confusing. This is absolutely the case. I've heard this a lot over the last six months. Email is now back at the top as like one of the best ways to engage your target on email. And all of us are like, screw email. I hate email. I want to be on Slack. And why don't you tweet me, et cetera? Well, it turns out because email is really about opting in, you, you, you kind of find a site, you, you put your name in it, you join a club, you're part of a society. And that email opting in basically says, tell me, engage me, you know, encroach on my consciousness. It's a permission. It's a really interesting key to permit people to come into your private spaces email. And it turns out that the click-through rates on email through the roof, especially because we now can block so much better because we can kind of control who gets into our inbox. But you know this, let's just say that there's a sports team that you love, or you know, you're know you an alumni of a school, you opt in and you're getting extremely targeted, highly relevant sets of information. And it turns out that you do open them, you do read them, you do not just you know, push them to, to, to spam or junk. And so it's just really interesting to see these days that you kind of almost have to return to old ways of engagement because there's so much frivolous, you know, obnoxious, sporadic, marketing outreach hitting us on all channels that sometimes the opt-in channel is actually uh, as powerful or more powerful than it's ever been. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point because there's so many ways now to communicate. I mean, I feel like I use five or six different apps, if not more, just to communicate to, you know, my family. So it's uh, just, you know, only like 10, 10 or so individuals. So um, it's it's uh, it's crazy. And then you have like, like I was in China last year, part of the program, and then, you know, I kind of learned a bit more about WeChat and about how it's really just they have this block, really, of just the entire like communication vertical. People aren't, you know, giving out their emails. It's just connecting on WeChat. It's quite, quite, it really made me think it was just quite remarkable. Oh, my gosh. And in the Middle East, if you don't have WhatsApp, you don't exist. You, you're not a real person. I don't care that you have a Facebook page, you got some corporate profile on your website, like that doesn't matter. If you're not in WhatsApp, you're not real. You can't even, and I've been dealing with clients in the Middle East for a long time. When you're messaging on WhatsApp, it's, it's not a chat, it's not like a youth chat thing. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, message. It's like literally you're brokering multi-million dollar deals in WhatsApp. That just to show you how targeted that kind of communication is. That invite in communication gives the brand permission to have a much more robust dialogue. And it's, I think to your point as well, that, you know, it really also depends on the, on, on the geographic areas, right? Like email in the U S has done really is, is, as you say, kind of back on the top in terms of um, how people want to be communicated. But um, that's what I like about it. You know, we're living in a really dynamic time. No question. What is one thing that you would change when it came to the perception of brand? I guess I work really hard to convince nonprofits that branding is a priority. So I guess I would change their 
disbelief. They really kind of like, it's so interesting. I'll be having a, a meeting with a nonprofit and we'll ask them a question like, so who do you think your competitors are? And they'll have like this, how dare we? We don't have competitors. You know, we're saving lives here. And, and, and so we say in response, like, oh, well, so your donors only donate to you, you know, or, or those grants that you're applying for, you're the only organization applying for those grants. And of course not. The donor is donating to lots of different institutions and the grant making institution is giving grants a lot. So you have to consider who your quote, comp fine, call them your peers, call them your friend set if you want. But please, for goodness sake, nonprofits need to understand that branding is as important as their strategic plan. And I'll tell you a fun example. I've never been a part of a nonprofit. And I've been a part of so many nonprofits, it's astounding, just through the work I do. Um, I've never been part of a nonprofit that doesn't have, quote, a strategic planning process. You know, they, they hunker down and they get their board together and it's a strategic planning retreat. And it's so interesting because they talk about all their revenue intentions and their service delivery intentions. And then you ask them, okay, great. So you got this big plan. Is this plan market relevant? Like, is this how the donors want to see you behaving? Or is this how the, and the applications for the fundraising channel, you know, for your grant channels, is, are these the questions they ask in the grant application? Because if not, then I really appreciate your strategic plan, but it's something for you. It's something for you to feel good about yourself. Brands help audiences feel good about you. And you have to take that into consideration when building a nonprofit institution. So that would be my answer to your question. One thing I would change about the perception of brand was that it's not just for commercial application. It's in fact as powerful or more powerful in community service, faith level, you know, school level programming as well. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Well, think about like, let's just pretend that you, you're a nonprofit and you, you, you know that um, the, the, the thing that you're doing is you're creating like life-saving solutions, okay? You're, you're aggregating data, you've got all these volunteers and these scientists and you're creating these life-saving solutions. And, and it turns out that the best way to, to fund your program is to get the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to fund you, okay? Because what, you, what you're producing or whatever service you're offering, it fits right within their social mission. You and everyone else also believes that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation should be funding them. So if you're not thinking about how you articulate your value and, and package that capability in a manner that fits right in, I mean, I wish your listeners could see my hands by making you know, like two, two sets of fingers coming together seamlessly. Because if you don't apply for that grant to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation the right way, with the right tone, with the right sort of identity, then you're just gonna be looked at like not structured well enough or you don't have a clear vision. And so they're not gonna fund you. And so that's where nonprofit brand programming is so, so important is that you might not say to yourself, well, we're not trying to get oh, all these consumers like Amazon. Okay, I get that. But there are buyers, decision makers and donors on the receiving end where if your brand is not well built, strong, articulate and intentional, they're gonna look like you're a risk, you know, giving you money it's potentially a, a loss situation, not a net contribution. It's, I think it's, it's part of your point that brand is everywhere. It needs to be taken everywhere. Like religion, for example, the first brand. So I have a, you know, you, you, you're, you're fun like this. So I'll, I'll point out, I have two books. I have a lot of books around me right now, but I have two books sitting on my desk right now. One of them is uh, from the Masons and it's actually like a ceremonial facilitation guide. That's for my grandfather. He was a Mason. And it's just so interesting to read the protocol and process and purpose. But let me tell you, this is a brand book. This is a brand book 
how to facilitate sonic ritual and why is it why does it matter and how do you communicate it and i have another book on my on my desk which is my work with the catholic church which is this is basically called the intellectual life it's just so interesting and it talks about how to wake up in the morning how to go to bed at night how to engage your family etc now listen this is this is catholicism i'm just telling you it's like it's like the ritual the practice of catholicism but what is it really it's really about an identity of how you feel your place in the world, your relationship with the people around you. And that's what branding is. Branding, again, it takes the factual regiment of a faith and it says, well, wait a minute, let me make it a little bit more relatable to you. Let me make it a little bit more engaging and emotional to you. And that way you'll follow the ritual. That's just my take on the situation. I thought you'd get a kick out of these books. No, that's great. Thanks so much for those examples. B before I took your course, I never thought about religion in terms of the brand and the actual and everything. So that was, that was pretty eye-opening for me. Oh, once you see it, you can never look away. What, speaking of books, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I'll tell you about a book that inspired me uh, professionally. I'll grab the book here while I'm speaking with you. Um, it's actually a go-to, um, it's, it's been a go-to resource in the branding business for over 40 years. Um, it's called Positioning, The Battle for Your Mind. And it's a very easy to find book. And it's uh, probably on the desk of any marketer you ever met. And it basically, um, it, it, it introduced originally, it really introduced the notion that the best thing that you can do for your business, for your brand, is to consider the, the, the marketplace of offerings and figure out where you fit in the marketplace of offerings and make sure that there's a space for you in that arena. And it's just such a simple notion. I almost do not work on a branding project ever without saying to myself, okay, great, Here's the lay of the land of all the offerings, all the competition. Is there a, a space that we can claim all our own and build our messaging and tone around that unique space? So this is called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Al Reese and Jack Trout. So that's the one that's probably influenced me the most professionally. The books that have probably helped uh, influence me the most personally are by Joseph Campbell. He's um, an auditor of world religions, he's dead now, but he was a great, he had this reverence for world faith. It didn't matter if we're talking about first American religions or we're talking about, you know, the Viking sagas. And what he basically did is he spent his lifetime studying them all and understanding the, the wisdom tradition, the, the wisdoms that came from each of them without judgment on one versus the other. And that's really helped me as a brand builder, build brands for organizations that make things or do things that I don't necessarily relate to. Like that I don't, like, for example, I'm not a sports enthusiast. So like if I'm working for a hockey brand, I could say, well, that's not my religion. So I can't respect and appreciate it. Or I can take the Joseph Campbell view, which is there's something beautiful and interesting and inspiring in every religion. Go find that. And that's the duty I put on myself. If I'm working on a hockey brand, I will put on that responsibility and say, Sasha, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a hockey fan or not. What matters is that there are things that are true about hockey that drive people, connect people, unite people, and you need to go find those things. So that's my answer to the second question about the, the content that's probably influenced me the most personally, socially, professionally, books by Joseph Campbell. I, I have questions about each of those. First of all, on positioning, when you might have like found that wedge in the market, right? Like you're, you maybe found that product market fit, as they say, how do you think about like expansion? I really appreciate your point because a lot of times founders really want to be many things to their core audience and you know and ultimately i think we've all heard this in our lives you know you can't be all things to all people a brand is supposed to be something very specific to a narrow few 
And we got to remind ourselves that there's only so much space for Amazon and Apple's in the world. The truth is, is that most of the businesses in the world are not of that scale. 99% of all businesses in North America are small to medium-sized businesses. So we kind of have to remind ourselves that it's not, it's not our job to necessarily become the next Amazon or Apple. But back to your question about, all right, fine, you've carved out a niche for yourself. Is that dangerous? Is that limiting because you can't expand from there? Actually, no. Let's go back to the Southwest Airlines example. So if you recognize, you know, Southwest Airlines colors are like purple and yellow and red. It's from almost like the Southwest of the United States, kind of like Arizona, the sunset, you know, that desert kind of color set, right? Okay. And Southwest literally refers to the Southwestern region of the United States. That's where they fly because there used to be Northwest. So there used to be, you know, all these different regional airlines. And so you say to yourself, ah, Southwest, like a little dangerous, you know, why would you want to position yourself? You're going to pigeon your ho- pigeonhole yourself into just a regional supplier. And what you realize is that Southwest was visionary enough to, to think through that and get, it, get into their head that Southwest is, is a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's, like, it's like a warm, engaging, happy lifestyle. And it's a way of thinking, not necessarily a region. Now, Southwest flies all over North America. They fly to Mexico, things that are not in the Southwest. And you say, oh, no, 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 not going to buy a ticket from Southwest Airlines because it's Mexico and that feels weird. You say, well, no, I'm going to take into account how they behave, how they think, and and how that manifests in their products and services. And I'm going to use that as the filter for how I choose my flight. And so it's interesting is that even though you can position your product, your brand around a certain position, as we described, It doesn't mean that that position can't expand over time, but what's key is owning that position. Once you own that position, then usually your market will not be distracted by your expansion. They'll they'll not be offended by you offering them more things. For example, Nike first and foremost went after shoes, right? That was it. The shoes that enable you to just do it. That That was the product. Okay, then once they kind of delivered on that unique position, now they've been able to scale up into virtually everything from apps to um, training regiments and things to that effect. And you realize you're not offended. You're not offended by them because they've expanded beyond their core position. That core position is what initially built their trust, your trust in them to begin with. And that's why you're willing to try uh, additional things from them. First of all, thanks so much for explaining that. And, you know, coming from the East Coast, totally understand how Southwest is a mind like I can totally relate to that just because I actually, it actually wasn't my intention to move out to LA, but um, a lot of my peers like LA and like the Southwest, it was utopia, uh, you know, where you, where you didn't have seasons, you didn't have snow. I mean, I, I actually love snow, but you know, it, I, I, I very much understand that point. Um, and then on your second point about um, the hockey example, it just reminded me uh, of a conversation I had with with a venture capitalist who invested in this company called Sunday. And what they, what Sunday produces is lawn products. And he was trying to, he invested and he was, you know, trying to get other investors on board for Sunday. And, and he said that like this one investor, like he's like, it was really hard to actually get investors on board in New York city because none of the investors had lawns. They couldn't relate to it. But then there was one investor who I actually also had on the show and is really excited about it. And he was like, sat down with him. He's like, all right, like help me try to understand. I don't own a lawn, but try to like, just help me understand what it is. And he ended up investing and the company's done really, really well. And so it just goes back to a bit of your example about the hockey. Yeah. And that's my, that's the point is that, you know, once you figure out what that core need is for a core audience. Now, let's just take this Sunday lawn care 
I don't know anything about it. First I heard about it was what you just said. So your listeners and I are on the same level, okay, right? So I suspect that once Sunday owns the contemporary practice of lawn care, they're probably also going to be able to sell other things. For example, um, maybe like uh, lawn decor, maybe also may, maybe things that you might use to recreate on your lawn, like lawn furniture. Oh, it, you know, because it all fits within the per perimeter of these guys care about lawns. And so you see that just because you initially positioned yourself for the lawn care giver, doesn't mean that once you prove that, that you can't expand into adjacent things. We tend to call that brand extension. And what's key about brand extension is that you intentionally only offer things that are just, just outside the rung enough to be like, oh yes, I get why Sunday offers that, but oh, that's not lawn mowing, that's lawn enjoying. But no, that still fits. Why do you mow your lawn to enjoy your lawn? Okay, great. And it, it kind of gives, you kind of give yourself over to it. And you're more willing to trust it. So I actually think that that's the best way to build a brand is to hunker down and focus on what core lifestyle product arena you can really truly own. And then from there, from there, you can extend out and offer a, an array of things that complete the solution. Of course. I mean, just like your example with Nike, starting out with the shoe and then expanding to, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, who knows else? It's it's really unlimited. So um, that makes a lot of sense. My final question for you. What is one piece of advice for founders when it comes to brand? The brand of your business is not you. So stop making it about you. I don't care what your favorite color is. Your favorite color is irrelevant. The only thing that matters to you as a founder is what are the colors of your comp competitors and how do you make sure you don't have the exact same colors or or I don't care what your favorite words are, or if you're a silly person, I don't care that you're a silly person. If your product category doesn't warrant silliness, then don't make the brand silly. So that's my guttural reaction to you, to every founder is, I know that building a brand makes you feel like you're launching your music career and you're gonna be that band on stage singing your heart out. I, I know that you think that, but unfortunately, that's going to get in the way of your success because if the if the brand's manifestation in the market is a manifestation of your personal leaning, then where you grew up and what your parents did professionally and what artists you care deeply about, that's going to color your world and it may be the wrong color for what your market is seeking. I mean, I'll tell you a fun story just because we're kind of wrapping up here and, and, it's, and it's, it'll be worth for those who hung out on our podcast and listened to the entire way through. So I had a client once, we worked really, really hard to build a strategy. I mean, we just had spent all this time in market. We talked to all these different audiences. And when we got to the end of the process, the, the color that we had picked, let's just call the color green. Okay, let's just, for whatever the point is. Right? One of the things was we picked the color green. And so at the end, the big reveal in front of the entire workforce, we said, all right, folks, you know, your number one competitor is orange, your number two competitor is red, your number three competitor is blue. That's why we picked green. And the CEO, perked up and said, I'm so glad you didn't choose purple. My sister-in-law's favorite color is purple and I hate her. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm like at the meeting and I'm like, so you would have risked, let's just pretend that we recommended purple because it was completely different. It was right for the market. You would have said no, because you don't like your sister-in-law. Like that's the reason. So of course, any rational informed any rational or informed business leader would stop and say, I don't care about my relationship with purple. I care about the market's relationship with purple. And if that's the right color for them, 
then I'm in. So back to your question about one piece of advice for founders when it comes to brand, don't make it about you. <laughs> That's hilarious. Thanks for sharing that story. Sasha, this has been such a delight. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, and had a good time. It's always good to see you and talk with you, Mike. Thanks for wanting to do this with me. And I hope that uh, you get enough reception that we do it again. And there you have it. It was really fun having Sasha on the show. And thank you again, Sasha, for coming on. I mentioned early in the interview that I teared up when I saw Sasha's TED Talk. I actually cried through most of it. It was just so powerful. I highly recommend watching it if you want to learn about Sasha's just incredible journey and if you want to learn how powerful brand can be. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow Sasha on Twitter at Sasha Strauss. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you're a founder and work on something innovative, have a question that you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thank you again for listening, folks.